2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Each summer, SCAD Film presents their Storyteller series, Conversations with Film and TV Industry Leaders, discussing the ins and outs of their profession. Later this hour, we'll hear from Mark Han, an award-winning Disney animator. He'll take part in a free virtual conversation tomorrow about the evolution of the animated princess. First, Niramana is the largest Jewish concert and culture series in the South previously known as the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival, Niranina shares and celebrates Jewish heritage through quality music and artistic experiences. Pianist Joe Alterman is the executive director of Niranina. He joins us now via Zoom. Joe, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so
0: much for having
2: me. We last spoke in October after the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival was rebranded as Niranana. For listeners who may not have heard that conversation, would you talk about why you made this decision to rebrand and what that term means?
0: Yeah, my background, as you mentioned, is as a jazz piano player. And when I came onto this this job, I was always asking, what is Jewish music? You know, I asked 300 people the question, I get 300 different answers, you know, anything in Hebrew, and I would show these people a Johnny Cash cover band that sings in Hebrew, and then, you know, or anything from Israel, I could show a Taylor Swift cover band from Israel, and there's always exceptions to all of it, so I realized that I think all of them are right, but none of them are right (laughs) at the same time, and to me, the Jewish part of the music was really the story about the music not necessarily the music itself so to me that was really Jewish contributions to music much less Jewish music and I felt like the name it basically didn't reflect what we were doing anymore and I realized too you know that it felt kind of exclusive to to Jews and non-Jews a lot of non-Jews did not feel welcome and a lot of Jewish people thought it was the Klezmer Music Festival and it's really none of those it's really celebrating uh Jewish contributions to especially American music. I realized we needed a name that better reflected the inclusivity of our programming, better reflected what we're trying to do, and better reflected the idea that while this is a Jewish organization, it's for everyone. We went through this rebrand and we found the word Naranana, which comes from the popular Jewish song of celebration, Hava Nagila. For those not familiar with that, that's the song you'll see it here at a wedding whenever it's getting thrown up in the chairs and everything. <laughs> And dancing in a circle joyously. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it means in Hebrew, let's come together and sing. So I think it's very reflective of of everything we're trying to do. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. I hope that explains it.
2: <laughs> oh, I think you explained it beautifully. It's Jewish contributions to music, which is universal. Yes. This will be the first in-person events since it's rebranding. What's the main focus of this concert and cultural series, Joe?
0: Part of this rebrand, I realized, too, you know, there's an Atlanta Jewish Film Festival and an Atlanta Jewish Book Festival, and at the time, the Jewish Music Festival. And I realized that I didn't think going forward, the differentiator should necessarily be books, film, and music. I realized that music will always be our main thing, but I realized what we really have is the live performance arena. And to me, music and comedy have always gone together, especially in the Jewish world and, and in America. And I want this to really reflect that. So we have four programs and three of them are music related, but one is our first foray into comedy with these two comedians, Judy Gold and Eddie Brill. Who coincidentally have serious ties to music. So I thought it was a good segue. Judy actually is a music major.
2: Wow. And she's an award winning comedian, Judy Gold. Oh yeah. Who will perform along with the comedian Eddie Brill you mentioned. Judy was a writer and producer on the Rosie O'Donnell show. And Eddie was the warm-up comic for The Late Show with David Letterman for many years. How did you connect with them in order to have them as part of this series, Joe?
0: Well, it's actually a funny story. I'm glad you asked. Um, Many years ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, I was still living in New York, and I met Dick Cavett at a Mort Sahl performance. (laughs) And... I started a friendship with Dick, and all I wanted to talk to him about was the similarities and differences between jazz musicians and comedians. And being that he was a comedian and a talk show host who knew all these great jazz musicians, I thought he'd be the perfect person to talk to. And basically, years went by, and we stayed in touch, and um, he'd come to my gigs and stuff. And when I told him I took on this job, wanted to get into comedy, he referred me to both Judy and Eddie, who are good friends of his. So it's all thanks to Dick Cavett, actually. I
2: should point out that you have this marvelous ability to relate to and befriend people who are in their 80s. Joe, no, they don't seem to notice the age difference, and clearly you don't care, but... Wabe's own h johnson considers you among his closest buddies and here you just walk up to dick cavett this comedy legend and befriend him when you were still in your 20s
0: <laughs> i was lucky i remember i said to him i, I was looking in front of me and i thought that's, that's dick cavett and i and i was it was before selfies really became a thing i remember saying mr cavett i'm so sorry to interrupt you but Would you mind if we took a picture together and he looked at me and the first words he ever said to me were, I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Oh, he's so funny. I have a little tidbit
2: to share with you. I spoke with him and he was so generous and so delightful. And one of the things that I couldn't wait to talk with him about was his... Theme music. Do you know what it was, the theme music for the Dick Cavett Show? I don't remember, honestly, no. He used a theme from Bernstein's Candide, from the Candide Overture specifically. And he was so excited to talk about music. And so there, you see, it was one more thing that you and Dick Cavett could connect with. Let's talk about some of the music on this Naramana series lineup. Rabbi Michael Lapidus will perform some original works from his Hello, Goodbye, and Peace album. Can you tell us which songs he will perform?
0: Well, it will be most of the songs from his recent album. This kind of came together because he and I play together at at a service, a young professional service at the temple often called The Well. And the songs are pretty short, but I love Micah's songwriting and kind of asked him to do this as a a way to really highlight his music and kind of I don't know about stretch out, but uh, to really focus on his song. So we're calling this a blend of a service and a concert, but it's for everyone. His
2: song, Better Angels, he took us through after the recent inauguration of President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. It was just so inspiring to hear him speak about that.
0: Let our better angels guide our hearts
3: Where love flows our healing stars Each of us must play
0: our part Let our better angels guide
2: our hearts better... He also wrote a song and had a video for the Atlanta Falcons when before they went to the Super Bowl with no less than the late Congressman John Lewis on it. I imagine you're familiar with that.
0: Oh yeah, Mike is incredible. I really want to highlight his what he does. He's great. <laughs>
2: Rise Up was that song. Yes. (laughs) There will be a teen showcase on August 1st. Who will play and what genres of music will be performed at the teen showcase?
0: I really see this, you know, it's funny as a music major myself, I realized once I got out of college, had my music degree, I got on stage at my first gig and realized I didn't know how to talk into a microphone, talk to the audience. So to me, this is really... I see it as as a opportunity to practice performing for young performers. So there are this is going to be hosted by a wonderful rising senior from Centennial High School named Mira Mershon. We're still getting together the final lineup of everyone, but there'll be between six and eight teenage performers that afternoon. And it'll be all kinds of music. It'll be mostly singer songwriter. That's what we have so far but I'm anticipating a few instrumentalists as well. I'd say mostly singer-songwriter, though.
2: And they are singing songs they've written themselves?
0: Yeah, it's. I guess it's a mixture of originals and covers I've really just you know the festival we used to have a battle of the bands and I kind of nixed that because I don't see music really as a competition but more as you know as a competition with yourself so I'm really giving these people who have applied to perform they can perform anything it's really just an opportunity to practice doing what they do in front of people so it'll be covers and originals.
2: So there's an educational mission to Nirvana as well. Definitely. I was intrigued with this Joe you have The Great Jewish American Songbook. The Great American Songbook, which refers to not a book, but a body of work, mostly Broadway songs and jazz standards from the first 60, 70 years of the 20th century. Many of the composers of the Great American Songbook word Jewish. What is the Great Jewish American Songbook?
0: Well, it's it's similar material from the Great American Songbook, but it's really songs that have a Jewish story connected to them. <laughs> It's not, I mean, there will be by Mirabas "Mr. Shane" and things like that, but uh, it's a pretty a big set list of songs that have nice Jewish stories from either their composer or, you know, when they were put out. I don't know if that uh, if that makes sense.
2: <laughs> Can you give us some examples?
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting when you talk about the Jewish American songbook and you go back to this, what is Jewish music question, which is my favorite question. I remember... A good example is you know, you take you know someone like Irving Berlin who wrote even White Christmas, and th- this guy who works for him named Albert Gum, who wrote Take Me Out to the Ball Game after reading a Yiddish article about baseball in a New York newspaper. And it's interesting because the songs, you wouldn't really say that they're Jewish, but they do have a, a quality where they're kind of quoting Ben Sidrin here, longing for belonging. A lot of these they had just immigrated to America and A lot of the times they said their Judaism had nothing to do with their music, they were Americans. But if you look at a lot of the music, you can find this longing for belonging quality, you know, with like Christmas I'm dreaming of and with take me out to the ball game. I don't care if I never get back. It's not really about baseball. It's about wanting to belong to something. So to me, what's really interesting is these stories, they're Jewish, but anyone can relate to them. You don't have to be Jewish to appreciate them or connect with them. But, you know, in terms of this program, there'll be a lot of George Gershwin uh, material and Harold Arlen, uh, Dorothy Fields, just so much music that has a Jewish story and American story and is really just hard to imagine America without.
2: For those who may not know Ben Sidrin, who is he?
0: Ben Sidrin is, uh, besides being a hero to me, (laughs) he is a musician and a writer and a scholar and, and a radio host and an interviewer, and he basically was roommates with Boz Skaggs and Steve Miller in college. And They got out of college and Steve Miller said, come to LA with us. And Ben said, no, I'm gonna make something of myself. He went to Cambridge (laughs) and uh, got his PhD in black music. He wrote a book called, There Was a Fire, Jews, Music and the American Dream that really inspired me to want to take this job.
4: (laughs) I can look the other way.
3: It's underhanded. So what? That's life today. Didn't plan it. Maybe I don't have a right to say.
4: But while I'm on the planet, if it's underhanded, let's call it and let the fallout fall out. Cause we're here tomorrow, but we're gone today. Too many
0: people. He's a fascinating guy. <laughs> yes, Nothing and you've had
2: him in a program with the Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews. It was just fascinating.
0: I loved, I remember Reverend Andrew started out the program by saying, uh, Ben's a Jewish guy who got his PhD in black music, and I'm a black guy who got my uh, PhD in Stravinsky. Now let's go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of hard for me to wade through because so many of the composers of the what we know as the Great American Songbook, were Jewish. There was even a joke at the time that Cole Porter was the only non-Jew, but he wrote Jewish music. Wasn't there a quote to that effect?
0: Oh yeah. I think it's funny when I, I met with George Ween, the founder of the Newport festivals and the new Orleans jazz festival, and he's Jewish. And I asked him, what is Jewish music? And he said, Cole Porter. <laughs> I said, he's the only one that's not. And he said, well, yeah, but to him, Cole Porter understood that at the time he was writing music, 80% of the audience that was coming to Broadway shows were Jewish people who had come from the Yiddish theater. So Cole Porter knew his music had to resonate with these New York Jews. So he wrote with that in mind. And I remember, uh, George said that he wrote the most Jewish-sounding song of all, which was, uh, I think, My Heart Belongs to Daddy.
2: Oh, well, there there are a lot of minor key songs he wrote. So is it fair to say that many of
0: the songs speak to the immigrant experience? They do, yeah, especially a lot of, of the ones from that era. I think, you know, when we're doing something like by de Shane. That's just an example of a, a Yiddish song that became very popular in America. But I'd say a lot of these early songs written by Jewish immigrant composers do have an immigrant theme. I mean, it might be not easily detectable from the first listen, but really, if you examine these songs and their lyrics, I think that is a theme that's there.
2: Yeah, well, we have Irving Berlin to thank for God Bless America, because certainly, these early 20th century Jewish composers were very grateful to have emigrated and proud of their patriotism.
0: Yeah. It's, I think it's important to note that many of them were not citizens in their own countries before they came here. So they were so proud to, to be here and wanting to be a part of it.
2: The Jazz Trio Duchess will perform a program. Would you tell us what happened last year when they were supposed to perform at the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival?
0: Oh, yes. This is very uh, a full circle event, I'd say. Basically, they were slated to be the opening night of our spring showcase in 2020, which was to begin on March 12th. And oh, that fateful day. That day. I remember uh, March 11th, I woke up, uh, we were excited and getting emails from our donors saying, I'm glad you haven't canceled. And then that day, uh, the NBA folded, the stock market crashed. I remember that was the night that Tom Hanks, it came out, he had it. And within five hours, the same donors were writing us and saying, you can't do this. We had an emergency meeting with our board and a lot of stuff hadn't canceled at that point. That was supposed to be at the Woodruff Arts Center and a lot of stuff there still hadn't canceled. So they were a little surprised at the time when we canceled, but we had to pull the plug. So basically we canceled our whole showcase and we, we didn't know when we were going to get to do it again, but I'm glad that we're doing it now and that we can bring Duchess back. Uh, so it really is a full circle thing for us.
2: Pianist Joe Alterman is the executive director of Neuronina. The Summer Music and Comedy Showcase runs from July 30th through August 1st. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You're probably familiar with the expression, a bad hair day. Well, celebrities can't afford to have bad hair days. Tracy Moss is a highly sought-after hairstylist in TV and film. She's mastered the hairstyles of many famous actors, including Gabrielle Union and Regina Hall. Moss spoke with us last year via Zoom to share insight into her creative process, and here she talks about the importance of hair for our self-esteem and identity.
4: It's a very, very important theme. And I realize more and more that more years that I get into it, whether it was in hair school, whether it was in the salon, whether it's on set, it's therapy, like when we're doing hair. It's not, we're just not doing hair, but we are actually doing therapy. So it's a very important field. Yeah.
2: I read that you had a successful salon for eight years called 360 Degrees Salon. Why did you want to pivot to work in the entertainment industry?
4: Well, when I first started, being that I went to college and I went to grad school, when I first started doing hair, I knew that I didn't want to just be a hairstylist in the salon. So from the beginning, I had big dreams. I wanted to work on set. I wanted to own a salon. I wanted to be an educator. There were a lot of things that I had on my bucket list that I wanted to do being a hairstylist. So that was just one of the points or one of the highlights of what I wanted to do. And I was at that salon for, well, I co-owned that salon for eight years. So that was a nice run. Very great experience.
2: Now, when you create looks for Black Panther or Guardians of the Galaxy, are you given strict guidelines of how the hair should look, how the character's hair should look? Yes. Okay. I I was wondering how much creative freedom and leeway do you have?
4: Well, the one thing about being a hairstylist for TV and film and being a hairstylist for such creative movies is you have to come with your foundation. You have to come with the foundation of your craft, of knowing how to do hair or knowing how the, the... Knowing the foundation of your craft, I will say that. And then once you get there, depending on, it's so many levels, it's tiers that you have to go down to get the, to nail the look of the movie, to nail the look of each character. So you have to go down from the director, then you have producers, and then you have creatives, the creative director that's a, that's over the whole look. And then you have the cost designer that creates the look and then it gets to hair and makeup so we're like the lads. once we get the instructions once we get the goal of how they want the film to look on the screen then we use our foundation and use our creative ability to get to it but it's a lot of steps even before the actor gets in our chair. And then once they get in our chair, we have a look that we are assigned for them. And then we still have to, because sometimes the actor is not they don't want it or they don't like it or, or it's outside of their realm of how they normally look. So then we have to, you know, play the do si kind of <laughs> to, to um, yeah, to make them or make them feel comfortable about the desired look that was already given to us. Ah,
2: so do you work from drawings? Are you handed those by the creatives before the actors get into your chair?
4: Well, no, we have lookbooks. And then when we have production meetings before the actual actors come, we have, you know, they have a a lookbook or they have not necessarily drawings, but they have pictures on the idea of what they want it to look like. It's very interesting because it's so many different types of movies you have sci-fi and you have period guardian of galaxy was sci-fi and then black panther was so much of textured hair it was a lot of african-american textured hair so it's so many different elements to being a hairstylist for tv and film
2: oh sure You mentioned some of the actors not being thrilled with the look that may have been created for their characters. When working with these celebrities on set, do you see a different side to their personalities compared to what's conveyed when they're in the limelight or on screen? I'm asking you, Tracy, can you dish? Can you tell us any interesting stories?
4: Well, I do see, I see the raw self. When they come in the trailer, they're coming from home. They're coming from some women. They just had a baby or, you know, they have their own personal life. They could have just been in the tabloids or, you know, just their Their normal stuff. They don't have on any makeup. There isn't any lights and cameras. So we're coming with. When they come in the trailer, we get their authentic self. So sometimes, you know, you meet the celebrity name that you think you know, and then sometimes you meet someone totally different, and you're like, oh my gosh. (laughs) there are it's it's totally different when they come in that chair because we get stories or we get you know you have a conversation with them and it's not the lights camera action that we see then once we get on set then it's a total different person
2: celebrity hairstylist tracy moss that creative spark segment comes from our interview last year, which you can hear in its entirety on our website, wabe.org citylights. You're tuned to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Each summer, Scat Film presents their storyteller series: conversations from film and TV industry leaders discussing the ins and outs of their profession. This year's free virtual conversations were given by three prominent industry insiders. City Lights producer Summer Evans sat down with one of those insiders, Mark Hen, an award-winning Disney animator. He'll take part in a virtual conversation tomorrow about the evolution of the animated princess. Mark and Summer were also joined by Lee Seaman, the executive director of SCAD Film. Here's Mark on his first big project at Walt Disney Studios Feature Animation Department in 1980.
3: My first big project was uh, Fox and the Hound.
1: I love that movie. That's my favorite childhood movie.
3: Yeah, so I was an assistant animator in a in Glenn Keane's unit and helped him the last few months of production on Fox and the Hound, but he was uh, working on the bear fight sequence. So I was his assistant animator for that.
1: So you moved on from being an assistant and you went on to supervise as an animator for some pretty big Disney classics like The Lion King, Mulan, Aladdin, just to name a few. When the animators and directors and illustrators all sit down at the table, at the brainstorming table, What's that process like for taking a story idea from the page to bringing it to life on the big screen?
3: Well, it's a journey to start with, and it varies. I mean, because sometimes we have some sort of a source material, like Fox and the Hound, for example. Uh, It was based on a book, based on a story. So it becomes uh, a process of adapting, you know, taking the elements that excite people in the story, taking it those elements out of the story, and you know, concocting or you know, crafting a, uh, our version of the story. Uh, that's one way, and then uh, the other way, of course, is original stories. I and mean, a lot of our recent films are uh, somebody, a director, comes in with an idea, and says, you know, this is my idea for a film, and then they go off and figure out, you know, figure the story out. So it's a long journey process, but you sit down and you know, you're know, you looking at the characters, you look at the situation. Um, it's, it's just, you know, kind of a similar process that any writer or story person would go through, if, whether you're writing a play or a book or anything like that. It's just, you know, our storytelling ends up being a visual medium uh, in animation. You keep what you like, you throw out what you don't like, and it's just this constant process. So even when we're actually in production, you know, a couple of sequences might be identified early in the process and, and the powers that be say, okay, great, start making the movie. So you'll start working on a, a particular sequence here, but over here, the rest of the story is still continuing to be developed and worked on. So it's, it's not not too dissimilar to, you know, even the way, you know, live action uh, movies are made and, and produced. You know, they're, it's a very kind of piecemeal. You don't always start at the beginning and and film in consecutive order. You, you start with what you have available and, and you go from there.
1: So it's a very collaborative process.
3: Very collaborative process, yes. You, you certainly, you know, the director is kind of the captain of the ship and, you know, kind of maintains the focus of what where the story needs to be but they don't always have all the answers and having directed myself i know that i am very much relying on the skills and talents of the people that i build the team that i build around me uh, is very important because they you know come in with their points of view their you know uh, insights that i may not know or understand and that's typical for most of our films and that's why uh, it's a very collaborative process, and 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 I think it makes a stronger film, stronger stories because of that.
1: And let's bring it back to Atlanta um, on July 20th. You'll be giving some of your insights with SCAD Film Storyteller Series. Lee, can you talk about the goal and the mission of this series?
5: The goal is to bring in industry luminaries who are going to break down story across all forms of entertainment. So that's film, television, video games, music videos, documentary, and animation plays a part in all of those. Uh, Certainly the animation we're most familiar with, I think, when we think of animated storytelling is the Disney animated story. And so to have Mark willing to return to SCAD and break down this idea of the evolution of the Disney princess, these her- heroic, iconic characters that we've all related to is something that fits right into the storyteller mission because, you know, we, we say at SCAD all the time, it always comes down to story, a good story. And how you tell it is the foundation for all forms of entertainment.
1: Mm-hmm. Lee, with museums, exhibits, and concert halls opening up, Why did SCAD film want to keep this series virtual?
5: The reason that we are continuing to hold this as a virtual event is for access. We have interested prospective families, students that are interested in these fields as areas of study who are all over the country, all over the world. We have alumni who are all over the country and all over the world. And we have multiple locations at SCAD. So by keeping it virtual and allowing anybody to tune in, no matter where they are, we open up this conversation to that many more people. We we very much look forward to being back on the ground at SCAD, but for this summer's programming, being virtual was an opportunity to bring in a greater audience.
1: Mark, besides the technology and tools that evolved and progressed over time in order to help you create more realistic depictions of these animated characters, how did the characteristics, whether that was personality, the storyline, their passions, how did that evolve during your time at Disney?
3: Well, as uh, Leah is saying, that it give, comes back down to the story. And storytelling is still the same goal in terms of just telling the very best story that we can and getting it on the screen. But just the, the types, the style of story has, has evolved as our culture has changed over the years. I mean, I look at the early princesses, which would be Snow White, Cinderella... And Sleeping Beauty, Aurora—they're uh, very much contemporary for their time. That's kind of the, you know, what I call the original or old, old school group, I guess you could call them. But they were very contemporary, very relevant uh, for their time. And now, uh, starting with uh, Ariel and The Little Mermaid, things change. But I look at the first group of princesses, if you will is largely, you know, kind of in a more reactive role. The stories, you know, happened to them and they kind of reacted to things a little more. Whereas starting with Ariel and going forward uh, into, you know, today's generation of uh, leading ladies, princesses, they're more proactive. And I think you would see that they make decisions that kind of move the story forward. And the decisions and the consequences of those decisions, you know, drive the story forward. And then, you know, of course, affects their journey affects them as characters along the way. So that in my mind, in the simplest way to put it is the way I look at it, you know, Snow White things just happened to her. It wasn't, you know, she didn't decide to be put upon by the evil queen, the queen did, you know, it was the queen that decided to take her out in the woods and, have her done in. And then the animals came along and helped her. She just, you know, kind of went along for the ride. And and then you get to Ariel, who we really wanted to be a very genuine kind of a teenager, you know, because we've all experienced that period in our lives uh, where you know, you're you're old enough that you think you know everything, and yet you're still a young person that you don't know everything, and you know, you're kind of maybe rash and you're angsty. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of the goal with Ariel. And again, she was more proactive. You know, she made decisions. She very purposefully, you know, went against her dad's wishes to do not go to the surface. And she did, and she You know, and again, she had to live with the consequences of those decisions, good and bad. And that's very typical then from her generation moving forward. Same with Belle and Jasmine and Mulan and and Moana and all those characters. Again, that's just kind of a reflection of our current culture and society that we enjoy watching a stronger female character in these stories. It just makes it much more compelling.
5: I'd like to follow up on that because there's an interesting sort of connection with what Mark's saying to how we got to this moment with his visit to SCAD film storyteller series. And that is that we first met Mark a couple of years ago when we held an anniversary screening of um, The Little Mermaid. And we were happy to have the original Ariel, Jody Benson, and Mark Hinn here at SCAD Film to talk about the film. And the screening was packed. I mean, packed, standing room only, with an enthusiastic crowd, so many of them current students. And so we asked afterwards of the students, what drew you to this screening compared to to others? And it was very interesting to hear so many, both male and female, talking about the empowerment of the character of Ariel. And backstage, Jody Benson and Mark talked about that and, and how they approached it when they did the first recorded the voiceover and the storytelling. And that really planted the seed for this event. Um, and we have been talking about it because we have found that this kind of conversation really resonates with our student population who are looking for ways to have their voices heard.
1: That's incredible. What a great connection. And that's so cool that you got to have the original Ariel come and talk alongside Mark. And Mark, did you actually create Ariel? Like that was the main character or did you create all the characters in The Little Mermaid?
3: Uh, Ariel was the character that I was assigned to, yes.
1: Wow. Okay. So how did you and your team come up with the idea for what Ariel would look like?
3: Well, the development, visual development of a character is, is getting back to, you know, the idea of collaboration. It's just that. It's a lot of different artists early on in production, you know, creating art to, you know, throw up on a board and say, here's what Ariel could look like. One of the things that we were mindful of was the fact that just a few years prior, the studio had come out with Splash. Of course, with you had Daryl Hannah as the kind of prototypical you know blonde mermaid and that was one of the things I think we all felt we wanted to go away from you know at least particularly with uh, with blonde hair no no offense to blondes but just we wanted to do something different and you know I forget who it was it was probably one of our artists or whoever you know came up with and just tried red hair and and one of the directors Ron Clements uh, was a redhead so he was certainly kind of partial to it <laughs> um, but the idea and just visually it, it, it worked the the contrast and the harmony of the colors red and all the sea green and blues it just seemed to work out fine uh, same with as they look for the voices there may have been I don't remember how many but just exploring trying to find the perfect match you know the visual to match the voice
1: yeah And it's just crazy how different I mean, Ariel, what a change now with the live action version coming out with Halle Bailey, you know, an African-American woman and playing The Little Mermaid.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and that's, you know, again, that's just their vision, the director's vision, the writers, their their interpretation of of our classic. And um, so it'll be interesting uh, to see how that all pans out. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to see it. (laughs) So, going back to what you were saying about society and how politics changed over time, how would you say that this affected your approach to designing a character and their appearance?
3: On one hand, it didn't, doesn't really have any uh, bearing on it at all, because we're just focused on telling a good story and then identifying the character. And then, my job, if once the directors turn to me and say, Mark, here is, you're going to be animating, you know, uh, Ariel in this case, we'll just say then I go off and just try to find what I consider and the directors ultimately will consider the most appealing looking character that, you know, fits into the uh, art direction of the film, uh, that fits into the storytelling and and their vision of how and who this character is. Uh, So I, I don't really think a lot about the politics involved. It's just um, what, what works really it's it's pretty it's pretty simple so you know you you have like in the case of Aladdin you obviously it was a a period piece so you have to be a conscious of you know the costuming and the period and the time frame uh Ariel was a little more free form although it was also a period piece but you know the world of mermaids was kind of wide open because that's not you know that's a completely open for interpretation I was privileged to go to China uh, as part of the research team to research the Mulan history. And then, so again, there's uh, historical facts. There's the time period, of the dynasty, although she's not really part of a dynasty. She's in more of a, what they call the Middle Kingdom period, I believe, kind of an inter-dynasty period. But there was, you know, there was, even though she's, largely considered a, a myth character, there's still you know a historical time period that is actual that we can research. And uh, we try to educate ourselves as much as we possibly can and get that in the screen, which just helps lend itself, uh, lend the story to more authenticity and more believability with the character.
1: Yeah. I was actually going to ask when you approached animating a character that was from a different background, race, ethnicity. What was the research process like? So I'm glad you touched upon that.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, um, you just, you know, you learn what you can. Um, It's, it's not a foolproof system, but you know, it's, it's a matter of educating ourselves. Uh, There are certainly, you know, customs and various cultures and things that we want to uh, learn about. And if we can use something in our film that makes it, more authentic, that's, then we'll try to do that as best we can.
1: Did you ever have a certain character or princess that was tricky for you to come and create, like it took a lot more time than normal?
3: Well, I suppose in that sense, Jasmine was arguably one of the characters I, I struggled with a little bit at the beginning, largely because she was the third leading lady princess that I had done in a row. I had come off of Ariel. Then I went on to do Belle and Beauty and the Beast. And then now I was assigned to do uh, Jasmine. Aladdin was very heavily influenced by the uh, caricaturist Al Hirschfeld. And uh, Eric Goldberg, who animated the genie, uh, kind of brought that idea and those elements, visual elements, to the production that the directors really liked. So we had that this kind of Al Hirschfeld-esque um, art style that was kind of, you know, hanging over our heads. And I, I just struggled a lot just to finding uh, Jasmine's, you know, look. And we went through a lot of iterations. and And finally, I one day just pulled a picture out of my wallet of my youngest sister, Beth, and I looked at her, I said, well, she's about the same age and she's kind of got the hairstyle that I had in mind. She kind of had this was her high school graduation picture. And, and it, that kind of, you know, cracked the, the nut for me in terms of getting over my, my artist block of finding Jasmine. So she's visually, she's largely inspired by my youngest sister.
1: Oh, that's so sweet. I bet she's honored to <laughs> have a princess after.
3: Yeah, she has some fun stories about all that. Uh, but that was a that was a bit of a, a trial in terms of just visually finding her and we went through a little bit on uh, Mulan that way too there was we were kind of going down one direction and it just didn't feel right it just there was just something that wasn't quite there and i finally just you know working with our art director and our character designer you know just we just kind of put our heads together and said let's you know let's we're kind of i felt like we were being maybe a little too conservative with her approach and let's, let's go something that's a little bolder, a little more stylized. And that was his style. And it seemed to really click.
1: Lee, how does this SCAD film series help students prepare for the real world of animation, film, and TV post-college?
5: As SCAD animation is the most popular degree program with film coming in a very close second. In fact, I think it's, the difference is less than a hundred students overall. And what we are seeing, of course, with the um, evolution of technology is that the lines are blurred more and more. And not in, we, I'd, I'd throw dramatic writing in with that too for screenwriters. And what we do with our programming at SCAD Film is we look for opportunities to bring in industry luminaries who are going to not only inspire our students, of course, because their careers are notable, but they they enlighten because they bring nuances to, to the forefront You know, talking about what, you know, Mark said about um, having his little sister as an inspiration is not necessarily something our students have thought about. But what if one student in that audience thinks about someone they know and from that grows an incredible story? You know, so that is the that is it at the, the most basic level. And by bringing in industry stalwarts and notable producers and writers and actors and animators and game developers and across all of these extraordinary programs and, and professions, then we are able to show what's possible.
2: Lee Seaman, the executive director of SCAD Film, and Mark Henn, the award-winning Disney animator. Mark's virtual conversation with the SCAD Film Storyteller series will be tomorrow evening at 5. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the serene yet brutal imagery of the journey, a series of paintings by Andre Henderson. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues, Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights, Archived interviews and full shows are on our website, wabe.org city citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.